You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Coming up next on SpyCast. Well, it was also became known as the works canteen of the intelligence community, because everybody used to either go into our bar or into the restaurant or the, or the, uh, the lobby to meet people, but it was mostly in the bar. And that's where Burgess, uh, McLean and Philby, at different times, met their uh, Russian handlers in plain sight and sat there and spoke, you know, normally didn't talk out the side of their mouths and have red carnations and, and copies of the Financial Times under their arm. They just all ha- uh, passed over their, um, their information, their paperwork or whatever in, in plain sight to everybody. Stephen Duffy is the Night Security Manager at the St. Ermans Hotel, Westminster, London, which, if you're unfamiliar with London, is right at the very heart of the British power structure, with the Houses of Parliament on one side and Buckingham Palace on the other, and with MI5 and MI6 just a little further down the River Thames. Stephen is also the custodian of the history of this legendary spy hotel, where the origin of the Special Operations Executive was quite literally <laughs> drawn up on the back of a menu card, which is now deposited in the UK National Archives. In this episode, we discuss the origins of the SOE, MI6 and the SOE in the hotel during World War II, spoiler alert, bad neighbours, incredible female spies of the World War II, St Ermans Cambridge Five connection, and the broader history of the hotel, which goes way back when. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends and loved ones and consider leaving us a five-star review. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006, we are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Tell us a little bit more about the St. Ehrman's Hotel. We're going to explore its relationship to the history of espionage and intelligence, but let's just help our listeners understand where is it? How long has it been there? You know, where is it in London? Uh, and then we'll move on to the other stuff next. Okay. Um, well, St. Ermans Hotel is based in Westminster. It is a 200-year-old hotel, a 200-year-old building. Um, the building was originally built as an apartment block 
the, uh, and the original owner kept it as an apartment block for about 25 years before realizing that he could make a few more, you know, as we say in London, a few more quid by turning it into a private hotel. So for the last 175 years, it's been, 100, it's been a, a private hotel. Um, it does have an extensive history. Um, we are within walking distance uh, within Parliament, Westminster Abbey, Buckingham Palace. And so, uh, you know, we're right in the middle of it. And particularly the coronation, we're going to have a front row seat on that as well. In Westminster, for listeners that aren't familiar with London, that's where the Houses of Parliament and so forth are. It's, uh, it's right in the heart of London. Yeah, it's the centre. It's, uh, Westminster is the largest. Uh, London is made up of thir- two cities and 33 boroughs. London is uh, the city of Westminster, the city of London, which is the financial district, and then the 33 boroughs that surround London. But Westminster is where the heart of government and, and, uh, you know, state and, and state and power is, basically. And can you just tell listeners a little bit more about how you came to do what you're doing? So tell them about your day job and then tell them about briefly about how you came to be the custodian of some of the stories of the St. Ehrman's Hotel. Um, the, I, my, my day job is I'm a part of the uh, safety and security team and I work on, uh, also work on a night team. So I predominantly work at night looking after the, uh, the hotel and um, during lockdown, during the between March 2020 and May 2021, the hotel was closed completely. So we couldn't leave it entirely, just close the doors and walk away. We uh, were part of a skeleton crew, or should I say, I was part of a skeleton crew looking after it. And that, that, during that time, because the hotel was empty, we were there. We had plenty of time to do the research. Um, I'm, a, I'm a great fan of um, history, military history. And it was great to be able to dig deeper into the um, uh, the history of the hotel. And from that, I was able to um, come up with the ideas for the, the, the guided tour uh, around the hotel and, and to, to entertain the guests. And has there been any uh, talk about you coming off of your regular duties to just be a full-time uh, curator and historian of these stories? I think that's an ongoing discussion because as we I've been doing the tours now for about a year, um, about a year, 13 months now or so. And uh, so it's gradually developing and the, the word is um, the word is spreading, as it were. But uh, obviously, I'm hoping that uh, as we expand our exhibits and our little showcases that we have in the hotel, um, then hopefully the bosses will um, think that's a good idea and, and have been doing it full time. I was going to say for our listeners, uh, if any of them ever go to the hotel or go to Westminster, there's a great place, one of my favourite places in London uh, for food, the Regency Cafe, where you can get oh, an yes. awesome full English breakfast. I'm sure you've been there a few times, Stephen. Yes, yeah, it's, a regular, <laughs> uh, it's a regular haunt of mine after my, uh, um, I usually finish my, uh, my night shifts on a Monday morning. So wherever possible, I, I'm, I'm at least once or twice a month, I'm, I'm always at the Regency Cafe, um, uh, you know, filling up after a very busy night. And the tea is so strong that you could you could it's feel a U2. Yeah. <laughs> it's known as builders, yeah. Yeah, builders tea. yeah, that's right. Builders tea. So let, let's dig into a little bit more about the, the history of the hotel. So tell us about how it first intersects with the world of intelligence and espionage. Now, obviously, because of its location, it probably will have even before 
you know, things were formalized or that are, were captured in documents. But when for you is the beginning of this story between the hotel and espionage and intelligence? I think it was, it would actually, um, from looking at the records and looking at the archives, it goes back to when the actual apartment block was built. Um, and uh, around that period, because even today, when you have apartment blocks and uh, fancy developments being built, investors are asked to do that. Well, one of the investors for St. Ermans was um, the uh, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II, German, um, who was, happened to be the German ambassador or uh, part of the Germ- a German delegation that was in London at the time. So we're talking around about the sort of the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he um, was there and was um, seen to have, a, um, was almost playing Monopoly, if you like, was playing Monopoly around London with various properties and various um, apartment blocks and buildings and things like that. But he was under the, um, he was already um, under the, uh, uh, the watch of intelligence services, shall we say, um, as they were at the time. They were keeping an eye on him because they realized, why is he investing all this money in our London? What's going on? Is he trying to take over? Are the Germans trying to do something? You know, that sort of thing. So that was an earlier um, an earlier reference there to it. This was just before World War One. Yes, just before, I was yeah. about to say, yeah, just yeah. before World War yeah. One. yeah. And there's a big anti-German skate around then, there's German spies everywhere, there's a, oh, a kind sure. of yeah, paranoia, every, right? Yeah, up in every tree and every bush, there was a German, <laughs> uh, you know, German spy hanging around, you know, every, the, the, the guy in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the coat and the trilby hat was a German spy, you know. Um, but it, it, that um, was the time, and so there was a lot of um, that sort of going uh, anti feeling going on. But it's it's itself the hotel um, had always been involved with um, in, in intelligence service because it was uh, the hotel's very discreet because of its location where we are off uh, Victoria Street in in Westminster um, because we're, we're off there at, at set aside. Um, it's uh, almost hiding in plain sight, if you like one of a better word, where there are a lot of um, organizations, and perhaps even so today, um, who knows, are using the hotel as, um, you know, as cover for something else. And it's not too far away from the current homes of MI5 and MI6. Uh, where is the hotel in relation to their former homes yeah. for our listeners? Uh, now, the former homes, uh, so you have uh, MI5 and MI6 there, um, Talk about the uh, early early days. Um, you had um, just around the corner on Broadway, uh, the street on Broadway. This Broadway House um, is there, uh, which is one of the buildings that they used. Um, but also, we have um, another building that which is uh, no longer there, which is also on Westminster. Just literally, we're um, you know surrounds us. They surround us. Uh, but GCHQ used to have um, a premises next, virtually next door to us. Uh, but they moved, they've since moved now and to a, a newer premises in Victoria Street. Uh, when GCHQ were there, was this early in the 20th century when there were the government code and cipher school? Yeah, uh, yes, they've, uh, well, they, they, the premises that they had there, I believe that they were there from uh, post-Second World War, uh, so from the sort of um, late 40s uh, upwards until just uh, recently, so I would say probably about 2017, so they okay. moved, maybe, uh, they certainly moved every, everybody out of the building. Wow. And I know that Churchill was a, a visitor there. Can you tell us a little bit more about hold uh, your powder for the Second World War period? Just tell us about 
Churchill? Did he come to the hotel before the war? Uh, I know that it became one of his regular haunts, but when does he first become part of the story of the hotel? Uh, so Winston Churchill became part of the hotel, um, or part of the story of the hotel, in 1926. Um, the next door, immediately next door to us, was Caxton Hall, which was at the time the, the Westminster Town Hall, and then became the registry office for births, deaths, and marriages, people getting married, and things like that. But at that time, they had a public meeting hall there. A section of it was a public meeting hall. Uh, Sir Winston Churchill held an election rally there. He was running for election for Parliament. I think it may have been to the Liberal Party. Um, he was running um, there and had a, a, a meeting there. We're not sure whether he uh, was. He came into the bar, uh, came into the hotel to celebrate or commiserate. But ever since then, he was associated. Ever since that night, he came in to drink a, his favourite champagne in the bar. And ever since then, he's, he, he was associated with the hotel up until his death in 1965. Wow. And for the First World War, did the intelligence story get fleshed out during this period? So you mentioned Kaiser Wilhelm II. During the war itself, was the hotel part of this hotbed of espionage and intelligence around London? Well, it's, it was and it wasn't um, because uh, un, the British government moves in mysterious ways. But uh, unfortunately, what they did is they decided, oh, the hotel would be ideal as a hospital. So they commandeered the, hospital, uh, the hotel and turned it into a hospital. The British Army took it over for the duration of the First World War and um, built temporary structures in there. So you had army nurses and doctors, Catholic nursing nuns in there looking after the place. And they were looking after recovering soldiers who'd been fighting on the Western Front in France and Belgium. And the, the thing was, is that was going on. But also at the same time, there was also a small intelligence detachment because they were trying to find out um, information um, and trying to find out, um, you know, have a base there to see if they would uh, find out any information, whether the uh, injured uh, servicemen were bringing back information or whether there was, uh, you know, anything of use to them. Wow. And how many uh, rooms does the hotel have, Steve? It has 331. Currently has 331 rooms and um, 15 meeting rooms and a restaurant and a bar as well. Um, the building, as I say, is, is the 200 years old. So there's a very, it's a listed building, so it's very difficult to to fit those in but what we have done is fitted in 331 rooms there so it's about 900 people we could we could house there overnight and it's a luxury hotel right uh yes it is it's uh, uh we're a four-star deluxe hotel uh we don't have a pool and we don't have a sauna because of this the size and shape of the building there's nowhere to put them fortunately and it's age of the building there's nowhere to put them so it's one of these hotels that you go for the character more than for sitting in absolutely. the hot tub after the bar. Okay, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sounds like my kind of hotel. Um, <laughs> so let's walk the story up to the Second World War then. So help us understand, you know, before the war uh, begins, you know, Churchill's on the back benches, you know, talking about rearmament and so forth and, Part of the intelligence game of the war is happening before the war actually erupts. So help us understand the hotel and the lead up to the, the conflagration that is the Second World War. There had been um, a number of, going through the records, there had been a number of uh, meetings where, as I say, Sir Winston Churchill had been associated with the hotel since 1926. So that was his regular place to hold court, if it were, 
outside of Parliament. So he would talk to journalists, he would talk to other MPs, other ministers or other interested parties in the lobby of the hotel or in the bar of the hotel. He would hold um, court there, have uh, meetings, dinners, uh, events and things like that. So it was building up to his, um, shall we say, his election as prime minister uh, in the May of uh, 1940. So we could probably say we had our front seat, if you like, of watching what was the developments of the build-up to the start of the war. And then once the war had started, to see how it was going. But obviously, even by the time Sir Winston Churchill was elected in May 1940, the war wasn't going very, very well. So they needed something to, to take that fight back to the enemy. And this is where we lead up to the one of the big claims to fame for the hotel. And just before we get to that, uh, that point... What does St. Ehrman's mean? Is there, you know, is there a story there or, or is it one of those these things that we know that that's what it's called but we, we've kind of lost why it was called that? Well, no, it's, it's actually called St. Ehrman's because it goes way back to the, uh, the time before, um, so, uh, before Henry VIII and also to, um, uh, goes back in history where you've got, um, there was actually a monk called St. Ehrman uh, or there was uh, Ehrman uh, and he was made a saint he actually was uh, leading sort of the, the charge for Christianity in the um, in the pagan world at that time. I was just wondering, during the war, does the hotel get damaged at all during the Blitz? No, not at all. Um, surprisingly, that's the one thing that I found very surprising, given the amount of uh, bombing that the Luftwaffe did in the area around Westminster and the targets, um, Palace of Westminster, Buckingham Palace, um, Westminster Abbey and, and all the other sort of targets in that sort of area, if you like. The hotel itself um, survived, but all the buildings around it, except for one, the Caxton Hall next door, the building um, uh, opposite and to the side were all destroyed. Let's do the big reveal now. Uh, tell, tell our listeners why it would have been advantageous for the Germans to bomb the St. Ehrman's Hotel during World War II. Just in, in May 1940, Sir Winston Churchill was elected as Prime Minister. And as I, was, as I referred to briefly just now, he, he needed something. The, the war wasn't going very, very well, and he needed something to take the fight back to the enemy. So he had called a, in the June of 1940. He got his ministers, uh, intelligence chiefs, military chiefs, everybody together for a dinner at St. Aramis. And about 15, 20 people, they got together, they sat down and had a dinner, and during the course of the dinner, they discussed how to take the fight back to the Germans. Um, and it was during this that Sir Winston had remembered his time in the Boer War, fighting, um, you know, re reporting and fighting on uh, in fighting in the Boer War. He himself was captured by the Boer commandos in the Boer War and held in, the, in what was a prisoner of war camp. He then realised he could take their use their style that they used of undercover um, uh, uh, people in un undercover agents, if you like, going into certain areas, disrupting what the enemy was doing. In that case, it was the British Army. But in this case, it was going to be the Germans. So they came up with an organisation called the Special Operations Executive, which was formed there at that dinner. And within six weeks of that dinner, the SOE, or Special Operations Executive, was up and running and up on the sixth floor of the uh, St. Ehrman's bu uh, building. Um, and um, they had, you know, were, were told, right, get on with it. You know, action this day and everything like that. And the sixth floor, that would be the headquarters of the SOE throughout the war? Uh, yes, for the first part, until they started to expand and to get bigger. 
and then they moved, they gradually moved from our building at St. Irmins over uh, around the corner to Broadway House, uh, which I mentioned earlier, Broadway House. They had uh, their um, uh, base in there, and then they have a number of other locations around London as well uh, because they gradually started to get bigger and bigger with more people and more space. But our, our um, uh, initial uh, section there was F section, which was the French section, um, which was there in our um, uh, building there. And that was the very first one to get everybody up and running and to start uh, the, training, the training schools and various other things. It's quite interesting, the timing of this, because the Dunkirk evacuations happening at the end of May and going into the beginning of June, and it's during this period that you're saying when... Churchill takes over uh, the reins of uh, office, becomes a prime minister, and then not long after Dunkirk, basically this idea to fight back to them is is orchestrated. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Women were recruited as well because women felt that they could actually blend in and almost, as it were, disappear in any environment because nobody would give a, a female a second look, if it, so to speak. They wouldn't give them a second look. Whereas if you'd see somebody, a man, um, you know, uh, they would expect him to be the spy. You wouldn't expect her to be the spy. That was the um, that was the uh, the sort of USP, if you like, of it. It's using the, um, the, uh, the the females to get in there because they could blend in anywhere. Many of our listeners will have heard of the SOE, but for anybody that hasn't, could you just give them just a couple of sentences? What was the purpose of the SOE? Yeah, the SOE was clandestine. Uh, it was a clandestine organisation, and it was basically to go in and disrupt everything and uh, to to disrupt whatever the the, the Germans were doing. Uh, but their main job was to go in uh, to occupy France, Belgium, and Holland, and to coordinate with the, the French resistance, the Belgian resistance, and the Holland uh, Dutch resistance groups that were already on the ground fighting in their own countries to coordinate all those efforts, to those groups together, and then as a united front to, to then start doing operations to disrupt the Germans, uh, blowing up train lines, um, factories, anything to disrupt the supply chain for the uh, for the Germans and just cause as much havoc as possible. And this, is, this can go all the way from organisation and logistics through to sabotage and, and blowing things up, as you say. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it was a case of initially getting everything coordinated because the groups, the French resistance, the Marquis and the various other groups didn't necessarily want to talk to each other from, say, an area like Normandy or Paris. There's the different districts of Paris. They'd all have different groups. They weren't all communicating or talking to each other. So they're all running off doing their own little individual jobs. Whereas when the SOE came in and they coordinated them all, they were in a better position to do better targeted raids you know, and, and uh, missions, if you like. Who became head of the SOE during this period? You had, uh, you had Colin Govins, who was the uh, the first of the head, but the head of the F section was uh, Maurice Buckmaster. Maurice Buckmaster, who was the uh, the boss there of the um, of the group, the, the, the F section. So there was various different sections, but uh, F, the French section, for everybody that operated in France, because that was the, the closest one, and that's the one that's most associated with us, uh, with our hotel. Uh, but Maurice mm-hmm. McMaster was the boss, and then you had Vera Atkins, who was his, if you like, uh, money penny for the uh, um, uh, of running all these back office. Mm. She was pretty incredible. 
Who did these people report to? What was like the, you know, we don't need to get too into the weeds on this, but what was the chain of command? Was there some line that went straight to the prime minister or were they part of the military apparatus? Did they have to go up to Allenbrook, the chiefs of the, the imperial staff and so forth? Or, yeah, help me understand how they related to the regular army. Yeah, they, they were actually um, part of this. Uh, so they were clandestine organisations. So they technically um, you know, didn't exist, although they were you know, a secret organisation. But the person who held um, the most sort of sway, they did, Buckmaster then referred directly to the Prime Minister. So it went straight through to the Prime Minister's office for, uh, for everything there. There was a chain of command for obviously for supplies and um, you know logistics organised. So within the War Office, there was the usual bureaucracy and everything else that had to be done through there. Um, and uh, that's sort of uh, from that side of it. But anything for decisions or power um, chain of command is the uh, would have gone straight to sort of Downing Street to, to the Prime Minister. To help you digest the episode, here's a quick primer on British wartime intelligence. The SOE was a secret, irregular warfare organisation whose primary goals were sabotage and subversion behind enemy lines, although it also engaged in espionage and reconnaissance. It was born of World War II and disbanded after World War II's end. World War II MI5 and MI6 are both descended from the Secret Service Bureau, which was set up in 1909 keep an eye on the rise of German military power and its challenge to British naval supremacy. There was a home section, MI5, and a foreign section, MI6. If you ever struggle to remember which is which, remember that the lower number is closer to home from the British perspective, MI5, whereas the higher number is further away, i.e. international, MI6. They are better known today respectively as the Security Service and the Secret Intelligence Service. MI5 and MI6, as titles, are technically archaic, since after their early years they have been civilian agencies closer to civil servants than the military. Two qualifications worth bearing in mind. One, from the present-day vantage point, MI5's remit seems relatively circumscribed, i.e. its home is the British Isles. But remember that until after World War II, home was to some extent international because of the Empire and the Commonwealth. Two, because of our globalising world, the boundaries between the original home and foreign intelligence gathering distinction will continue to be less than crystal clear. Next, we also have MI9, which was another born of the war and disbanded upon its end. It was formed to facilitate the escape of Allied prisoners of war who had been captured and to help those who had been shot down to escape before they were captured. We can't discuss every organisation, every MI. But I think ending with the government code and cipher school is a good way to round out this interlude. This was a signals intelligence organisation that had existed since 1919. It would become famous because of World War II for its wartime headquarters, Bletchley Park, was where code breakers helped crack the German Enigma machine and other important codes. Alan Turing is probably the most famous cryptographer who worked here partly because of the Benedict Cumberbatch movie, The Imitation Game. We'll be right back after this. 
Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Can you tell our listeners... um some of the other interesting occupants of the hotel during the Second World War? Um, yes. I mean, we've also had, uh, during that time, um, we also had, when SOE set up their first office there on the sixth floor, up in the corridor, uh, they had a suite of rooms on one side of the corridor. On the opposite side of the corridor was MI6. MI6, or Secret Intelligence Service, they were, they were actually on the opposite side of them. And as you can imagine, the um, MI6 did not like the SOE uh, because they were seen as these Johnny-come-lately, who are these young upstarts that are here? Who are these jokers? Um, And so it it did take a little while for them to try and uh, work together, um, particularly because SOE, when it first started, did not have its own communications network, its own wireless or radio network, and had to rely on messages being passed by MI6 across the corridor. And being the old school Etonians or, um, you know, Cambridge or whatever they were, um, schools, public school guys, what the, the MI6 would often sit on those messages for a couple of days and pretend they'd lost them. Um, whereas, MI6, you know, SOEs having to try and sort of rely on them for the messages, but they then eventually got their, SOE got their own wireless network. So when you say MI6, Steve, do you mean that 
the whole of MI6 was based there, or was that an overgrowth? Was that a particular outpost of MI6? Or it's, an, it's just an outpost. It wasn't the whole. It wasn't the whole group. I mean, obviously they were um, uh, off doing other things, but it, this was a particular, um, if you like, a detachment, if you like, of them that were there in that office uh, where they had their communication space set up. Um, and so they had people out in the fields doing whatever they do, uh, whatever they were doing at the time. And so that's why SOE needed them because they kept, had this far-ranging uh, wireless set that could, you know, get them out to where their people are. And what was the purpose of the outpost? Did they have a specific function, like the French unit? Help me understand what it was. That was. It's, it has been difficult to find out. Actually, it's not very well um, documented uh, to say exactly what they were doing. But it's just that they were they were all based there together, um, and so. It's, it's believed that the, uh, the MI6 uh, group there could very well have been um, a, a French section because that was the most dominant area that everybody was working in at that time before it expanded to the other areas. And was that happenstance that MI6 and SOE were on opposite sides of the corridor or was that intentional? From what I could gather, I think it was just pure random luck that they just happened to be put together. I mean, I can't, I haven't seen anything to sort of say, okay, you're going to be billeted there and they're going to be billeted there because I think MI6 were there first. And so it's just that uh, because um, the, the great speed at which SOE was set up, I think that they needed every available space that they could find. So the SOE was sort of said, right, okay, the hotel said, that's the available space we've got, everybody in there. And it just so happens it was next door opposite MI6. And for the genesis of the SOB, tell us the story of the menu card and uh, how it came about. And if you still have the menu card uh, and then also the the dinner, uh, yeah, set the scene for us. If you imagine it's June 1940 and um, as I say, Sir Winston Churchill um, has been Prime Minister for a month. And he is uh, trying to uh, find ways of taking the fight back to the enemy. He has uh, called the dinner at St. Omens and he has brought together um, all his um, military chiefs. So it includes Earl Mountbatten and staff officer was Ian Fleming, uh, both working in naval intelligence or naval counterintelligence, should I say. And uh, they, together with all the um, heads of the army, that uh, the Navy and the Air Force, uh, the various uh, intelligence, uh, MI5, MI6, and uh, a few other ministers and people like that. So about 20 people all together that were all sat around at the dinner. The dinner went on, but as they were talking, um, Sir Winston had remembered about his, his time in the Boer War, as I mentioned earlier. But it was obviously as they toyed around with different ideas and they tossed around different ideas. As the ideas, as they're doing so, Sir Winston has a menu card. Uh, and on the back of the menu card, he's written down exactly what he wanted to do the, about the SOE, the clandestine undercover unit that he would send in to occupy France. And he even notated, um, if that's the right word, um, or made notes about how it would actually be done. So they, they, the two different things they would do would be the couriers and then the, the wireless operators. They would be the two the two roles, if you like, for both men and women that would be, would be sent into the occupied areas to, uh, to forward that, um, you know, forward the cause, you know, to develop the cause and, and coordinate the resistance groups. And that's what he, he, he saw Winston Churchill felt was the most important thing that they would do. And that was agreed on that night. And then, as I say, within six weeks, SOE, as we know, it was up and running. 
And how do we know about the record card? It is in the National Archive because it was um, held on to by um, the Churchill family. And it is, as, as I understand it, in the National Archive at Kew. Um, it's, it, there in West London. It's, it's, the, um, it's held in there. And um, it has to be viewed by arrangement. Oh, excuse me. And tell us a little bit more about Hugh uh, Dalton. He's quite a fascinating figure, uh, the Minister for Economic Warfare. Indeed, yes. Um, now, he was actually uh, one of the, mes- the ministers uh, that was there for uh, economic warfare, as you say. But he was um, brought into the, He was at the dinner as well. He was one of the ministers that was there at the dinner. And he had uh, been given, officially given, the task of told, right, Let's go. I mean, the, the, the phrase, let's set, set Europe ablaze, let's get on with it, action this day, and all those sort of regular phrases from Sir Winston. But it was, it was a case of he was the man that was, um, has been officially associated with setting up uh, the logistics or the, um, the, the skeleton, if you like, of SOE. Um, and then everybody else was coming in and filling out the, uh, the, the bones, flesh, put flesh on the bones, if that's a word. I think it may be quite interesting to give our listeners a, just a pen portrait of Vera Atkins because I think she has a, a really fascinating role and, you know, we can talk about this stuff abstractly but it's always easier if you have examples of real people that were actually doing this kind of stuff. So just let, let's just talk about her for a couple of minutes. Can you just give our listeners a primer on her? Yeah, sure. Vera Atkins um, had worked, uh, was a Romanian Jew that had uh, worked in um, the uh, Eastern, uh, worked in Eastern Europe, and then had um, come over to uh, London to work in, with the intelligence services in London. Um, she had uh, actually uh, come to the attention of uh, Maurice Buckmaster because at, at the right time, I think it, she just it was timing. I think it was just the right time for her to arrive in London, um, where she was going to be associated, going to be working with one particular ministry or one particular thing to do translation and various other work like that. But she came to the attention of Maurice Buckmaster, who then recruited her for SOE to be his back office. And um, uh, Vera Atkins' job was basically to run that office um, with him, but also to recruit all the female agents that would subsequently would be there. So to, to recruit, you know, to um, you know, meet, interview, vet um, all the all the, um, the female agents. And she would then subsequently be, be uh, apart from her main job of the back office, running the operational side of it, she would then also um, have a, um, a regular um, view of all the female agents that were there, even to the, to the extent that when they were going off on their missions from RAF Thamesford, um, flying off to France or to wherever it may be, um, she would actually see them off. She would make sure all their clothes that they were wearing were French. There was nothing British about them, nothing foreign. It was always, um, you know, from exact for the country that they were going to, and she'd make sure, and then she'd see and meet them when they came back again. As a SpyCast community, we've been getting our heads around artificial intelligence, the metaverse, and other emerging technologies and landscapes that have the capacity to disrupt the field of intelligence. In this show, we look at the present and future of intelligence and espionage, but as in this episode also, and importantly, we look at the past of intelligence and espionage. How about (laughs) mixing past and future? Here are the top five books recommended by ChatGPT, the generative AI platform on the Special Operations Executive. 
Bear in mind that many of the SOE files have been lost to history due to fires, accidents and bureaucratic banditry. 1. The Secret History of SOE, Special Operations Executive 1940-1945 by William Mackenzie. 2. Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, The Mavericks Who Plotted Hitler's Defeat by Giles Milton. 3. The Women Who Live for Danger, The Agents of the Special Operations Executive by Marcus Binney. 4. The Spy Who Loved, The Secrets and Lives of Christine Granville by Claire Mulley. 5. A Life in Secrets, Vera Atkins and the Missing Agents of World War II by Sarah Hill. I have to say, I'm actually pretty impressed. I am so glad I am not a history professor anymore though, because if you're an academic, chat GPT must be a darn menace. I must also run the risk of massive grade inflation. I used to wish some of my students could come up with books like these five and their threadbare bibliographies. Let's just talk about another couple of the figures that are associated with the hotel. So I believe there's links to the Cambridge Five at the hotel. Can you speak about them? Indeed. As soon as the, the uh, European Theatre of, of War finished, um, the SOE, as, as it were, was disbanded and the agents who'd been working for SOE were then uh, swallowed up by MI6, uh, recruited by MI6. So what wasn't known at the time was Burgess, Philby and McLean were actually double agents for, uh, for Russia. Um, they had already been recruited or turned, or whatever the case may be, um, in, uh, when they were at Cambridge. They'd already been recruited there, so they were already uh, agents, if you like. Um, and one of the things that they did is they used to meet uh, quite a lot within the, in the bar because our hotel was not only the first base of the SOE, but it was also became known as the works canteen of the intelligence community because everybody used to either go into our bar or into the restaurant or the, or the, uh, the lobby to meet people, but it was mostly in the bar, and that's where Burgess, uh, McLean and Philby at different times met their uh, Russian handlers in plain sight and sat there and spoke, you know, normally didn't talk out the side of their mouths and didn't have red carnations and, and copies of the Financial Times under their arm. They just all uh, passed over their, um, their information, their paperwork or whatever in, in plain sight to everybody. And tell us a little bit more about that bar. That was the Caxton Bar. That's right. That's the hotel's Caxton Bar. And uh, that's our uh, sort of famous bar, which for the last, uh, as I say, at least for the last 175 years, has been um, the place where um, everybody would go to. And it's, I think, a lot more people today, because uh, a lot more things are becoming known, uh, hopefully through my work, uh, are becoming known about the hotel. There are actually uh, people coming in of interest. They go to the bar because, hey, that's famous. That's where the spies meet. And I'm imagining it does quite a good martini. Oh, yes, uh, very much so, <laughs> uh, yes. And also um, there is a, a drink there which is called a, a Vespa Lind. Ah, Ian Fleming. Yes, Ian Fleming, of course. Um, perhaps um, uh, for your audience, I, I should explain that um, obviously the... Uh, at that meeting we spoke about, Ian Fleming, and he obviously went on to create this series of books uh, about a character called James Bond. And we know, um, or we understand, that a number of the, the characters that were appear in there, Q, 
Monty Penny and um, the uh, other, a couple of other characters, Vesper Lynn's was one in, in, in the books there, were all, um, uh, the, the inspiration for those characters came from SOE agents. Erin, who works on the podcast with me, she, she had a look at the cocktail menu and there's actually uh, five drinks named after the Cambridge Five. Yes, it, <laughs> yes, there's race, yeah. And it's their code names like Stanley for Philby and so forth. Yeah, and you've got... Um, the uh, the difference and they're in uh, they're also different strengths as well so they almost you could sort of say that but depending on which one you go for packs more of a punch okay and just briefly um, Violet Zabo I think her story is really interesting can you tell us a little bit more about her yes the short version is um, that uh, Violet Zabo um, was a young lady from South London who left school at fourteen. She um, went to work for a department store in Brixton, in South London. Um, during that, this was during the Second World uh, during the Second World War. She met, fell in love, and married um, a Foreign Legion officer by the name of Etienne Zabo. Uh, so Violette um, became Mrs. Zabo. Um, they settled into married life in South London. They had a daughter called Tanya, and. Um, then um, Etienne went back off to fight with the Foreign Legion in uh, North Africa, where sadly he was killed. Violette lost the soul of her life and her soulmate, and uh, she had to uh, decided to take the fight back to the Germans herself. She was so enraged by it and was recruited by the SOE. Uh, she was recruited by the SOE, particularly as she spoke fluent French. She had a French mother and a British father. She spoke fluent French without an accent. And so was recruited by SOE for her skills, put through a training, went on the first training course, uh, uh, big pardon, on the first training mission and was quite successful. When she came back from that, it was the night before D-Day, so the 5th of June 1944, and they needed um, a lot of SOE agents to go into Normandy to start disrupting the Germans um, before when Operation Overlord was about to happen to, to stop them being able to fight back. She was parachuted in there. Um, she, she landed with uh, six other SOE agents. They were picked up. They met. Um, uh, uh, they were met in a truck by the French resistance, and uh, they travelled down a road. They uh, were um, stopped. Came towards a German um, roadblock. Uh, they turned the truck around. The Germans fired upon them, chased them, and then they went to a farmhouse nearby, where Violet Zabo went up into a window on the first floor. Uh, with, a, with a machine gun, actually uh, held off the Germans for four hours with um, the machine gun so the others could escape. Um, obviously, she out, ran out of ammunition. Uh, the house was stormed. She was arrested, um, interrogated uh, rather brutally by the Gestapo, and then went from prison to prison, and then uh, sadly uh, finally ended up at Ravensbrück concentration camp where she was executed at the age of 23. Um, and for that, she received the George uh, Medal and uh, the Croix de Guerre and the Légion d'Honneur. Really incredible woman. Is the Cold War spy game part of the St. Herman's Hotel story as well, or does it end at the end of the Second World War? Oh, no, it continues. No, 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 it continues, the Cold War. Um, it continues with that, uh, where, as you say, with Mr. Burgess, Philby and McLean, uh, that came out. Um, and then even up as far as, I would say, as far up as far as, the, what I, I've managed to find out, as far as the Iraq War. So, I mean, we still have, um, connections there with the intelligence service, and even today, um, there's still things that are done there. You know, with the um, intelligence service, they're still using the hotel for various different um, things, shall we say? And 
I know that at the hotel there, you've got a small uh, exhibit and you've got some artifacts and so forth. I would love to just educate our listeners a little bit more about them. Can they see them if they go to visit the hotel? And yes, what can they expect? Yeah. What can, what can they expect to find? Give us a couple of highlights. It's the the showcase. The, the the window there is the showcase. We're working with the London Clandestine Warfare Collection that runs the collection. And as we're the birthplace of the SOE, they have put this um, first showcase there. And then they've got other showcases in other locations associated with the SOE. But in there, you will see uh, Violet Zarbo's uniform. Um, when she was on the training, um, they needed a cover uh, cover unit. So the first aid nursing yeomanry. Um, or the Women's Auxiliary Air Force were the female cover units. And uh, Violette's uh, first aid nursing yeomanry uniform is in our uh, showcase, uh, as is the um, a thing called a well rod, which is a uh, W-E-L-R-O-D, a well rod, which is the world's first silenced pistol. And it's still being used by uh, special forces today. Got that. We've got also a, a biscuit tin radio, which is um, a wireless, shortwave wireless, a Morse code set that uh, is um, packed and hidden into a biscuit tin and then uh, used by the agents and then hidden in the biscuit tin and hidden in the cellar um, out of plain sight, you know, so nobody could find it. How many tours are you giving every week, Steve? Every week is uh, not so much every week. Uh, I'm not doing at the moment. Uh, I usually do about three or four, but at the moment um, we're not quite into spring and summer yet. So as soon as it's spring and summer, then I'll be doing more. Uh, it's more popular then. But at the moment, they're a couple of times a month at the moment. But then they will get uh, more as, as we go into spring and summer. And how does one go on the tour? Do you have to be a guest of the hotel and then sign up for it, or? No, uh, no. What you can do is, I have a lot of groups from outside, uh, from both uh, military, from the law enforcement, from government. Um, they get in contact with me. They can email me, and um, we can uh, arrange a date and a time. And uh, we either either do it an afternoon version, which includes afternoon tea, or there's an evening version, which includes beer, uh, a beer and fish and chips afterwards, the tour, and then the beer and fish and chips, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> We we would love to come one day and, and take the tour and obviously have the fish and chips. Wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. She's getting really excited uh, just out of the corner of my. <laughs> but both of us would love to come uh, and oh, see the hotel. It sounds it sounds fascinating. And just out of interest, do you know if there's any counterpart hotels in other parts of the world that have this? Obviously, not this unique story, but that are known as spy hotels. Maybe one in New York. Washington, Moscow or Paris or something? I mean, I'm glad you asked me that question because it's something that I was thinking about myself only just the other day about doing some research on. And I know somebody, um, one of the people that came on a tour, a guest from America came on a tour, said he was sure there was one in D.C. Um, if not D.C., then certainly in Virginia, somewhere in Virginia, that might be associated with the CIA or, you know, spy hotel, that type of thing. But again, it's something I need to do some research on and find out. But I'd be certainly willing to, happy to hear from anybody who is. Since I'm uh, in the United States and a lot of our listeners are from the United States, can you just tell our listeners if the OSS were part of the story of St. Ehrman's Hotel? Oh, yes, they were. Yes, indeed. Um, now, the uh, Eisenhower, who was the uh, commander of Allied forces in, in the UK at the time of the uh, D-Day landings, and at the time of the... The, um, the SOE was being set up. He went to see the training school, the combat school in Scotland, the Airsrig in Scotland, and met William Fairburn and Eric Sykes, the chief instructors. And he uh, liked what he saw, 
and actually thought that this would actually, he could turn, he wanted to get Sykes and Fairburn over to America to teach instructors in America how to do the same thing. So you'd have an American unit. So that is where the, the OSS was born, the Office of Strategic Services, which is now, as we know, the forerunner of the CIA. So the St. Ehrman's Hotel is basically the birthplace of the CIA. Um, yes, it is. It is, actually, yes. Okay. We could say that, yes. Thank you very much. Okay. We could say that. <laughs> well, this has been so much fun. Um, thanks so much, and uh, I'm really glad we made this happen in the end. Yeah, me too. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you go to our page at thecyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. Coming up on next week's show. Sometimes people think there's this impervious wall between fact and fiction um, in intelligence, and that's simply not true. Um, We know that uh, intelligence officers read spy novels and, and go and, and see, you know, TV shows about spies and movies, perhaps more than, than most people because they're interested in that topic. If you have any feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at INTL Spycast. I'm your host, Andrew Hammond, and my podcast content partner is Erin Dietrich. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Vaughn III, Emily Coletta, Afua Anokwa, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester and Jen Iben. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.